Hello folks, this is Robert Fleming, a partner in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. I'm here with my law partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We are going to talk about gifts today. And, and here's the question I want to tee up for you, Elizabeth. I'm preparing my estate plan. I have a pattern of making gifts to my family members, to my son and daughter and my grandchildren. Uh, and if I ever became incapacitated, I would want that to continue. Um, so what do I need to do to make sure that, that that can continue? Well, Robert, it's really important to have a durable financial power of attorney. So a document that may become effective upon your incapacity, or it may already be effective. It's also important if you do have a trust to have some provisions in your trust that talk about gifting. So in your power of attorney, you may see a provision that allows your agent to make gifts on your behalf to others, maybe including your agent. And in your trust, there may be a provision that allows your trustee to do the same thing or allows your trustee specifically to make gifts for the purpose of getting funds out of your estate for tax planning purposes. In either case, there is certainly an opportunity for people to continue receiving gifts from you, even if you're incapacitated. So I've looked at my, my living trust and my financial power of attorney, and I don't see anything about gifts, but I've given my, my son my power of attorney, and the document does say he has very broad powers to do anything I could do, and obviously I could make gifts, so he can make gifts for me, right? Well, Robert, it's not that he is disallowed from making gifts, but I wouldn't encourage it unless there's some explicit language there. The reason why is because people can very quickly say that somebody may be acting in his or her own interest, particularly if they're writing checks from your account um, to themselves. Well, I, I've talked to him and, and he knows exactly what my thinking is. And uh, and he knows that I, I mean, I've given him $10,000 a year, every year for the last seven years. And he knows that I would want to keep doing that. I've also given his sister $10,000 a year for all those seven years. He would. He knows that that would, I mean, obviously, isn't it obvious that that should continue? Well, Robert, have you ever had your CPA sit down with you and talk a little bit about your history of gifting? Is there any kind of documentation that can show that, that would be a way for you to work with your CPA to help oversee what your son is doing on your behalf? It's not a great idea to sit down at the kitchen table and just have him write checks for you, uh, particularly when we're talking about gifts. And I don't mean to say that your son is not somebody who I would trust with money or who isn't going to be doing the ethical thing, but it can create some uncertainty when gifts are delivered to some people and not others. And I think the best way to make sure that your regular pattern of gifting is continued is to actually document what that pattern of gifting is. I'm somebody who, uh, if I make a charitable gift or make a uh, gift to an individual during the year, I actually have a funny little Excel sheet and I type in those numbers and it's there's nothing technical about it, but I also send it into my CPA every year. Um, not because I'm going to get a tax deduction, but because I want to make sure that there's some place that shows what gifts I do make and what those amounts tend to be. And so Robert, in your particular example, sure, your son can write a check to himself for Christmas if that's what you want. And he can also write a check to your daughter for, for the holiday if that's what you want. 
But if you're doing this, it's a really good idea to make sure that your CPA, your estate planning attorney, somebody who is in your professional circle of advocates knows about it. Because I have gotten calls, Robert, I'm sure you have as well, from concerned CPAs, from concerned family members, when they start to see that checks are made by an agent or trustee to himself or herself as just a gift. You know, assuming that there's no language in the document authorizing it, it's worth noting that the IRS has long taken the position that if your agent makes gifts without clear authority, written authority to do it, that those are gifts that you could set aside if you woke up from your incapacity and, and said, no, I want that money back. You could get it back. And the significance of that is, from the IRS's perspective, that money never got out of your estate because it's a conditional gift. It's conditioned on you not waking up and objecting to it. So that, but that's not usually the big issue anymore since the exemption amount for estates is over $11 million. Um, so that, that's not the way that question comes up, but that's where the body of case law and, and rules kind of comes from. If it's not clearly articulated in the documents, you might not have the authority to make gifts. Well, Robert, what happens if your son or daughter comes to you and asks you to start making gifts in, in your incapacity to charities that they like, that, that maybe you haven't gifted to in the past, but they think would be a good idea for you to make a gift to? Is there a problem with that? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, and you said in the course of that, that theoretical that I'm already incapacitated. So when they come to me and ask me to do it, that's another way of saying they've told me that they're going to do it because I don't have the ability to agree that, that their favorite charity is, is now my favorite charity. And, and there's a point in all of this at which using the power to gift becomes financial exploitation. Uh, so you are potentially putting your children or your agent or your trustee at risk if you don't clearly express what gifting authority they have. Robert, we often see people in our office ask about independent fiduciaries and what it means if Fleming and Curdy or another licensed fiduciary like us might be administering an estate. Um, I have a number of trusts that I work on, and I know you do too, where we do make annual gifts to children, to charities on somebody's behalf. But there's very clear language there, and it oftentimes takes a little bit of the, the confusion out of it when there's an independent party uh, making the gifts. That's one thing that I would note for people. Uh, you may consider having an independent fiduciary, and one of the reasons why is it can often reduce the confusion around something like gifting. Um, and, and in furtherance to that point, Elizabeth, if you named us, for instance, Fleming and Curdy, as your trustee, you should expect that we will not make gifts without clear authority to do so. And that's not a threat. That's a way of saying if your son or daughter is the fiduciary and they are making gifts, they're violating that basic premise unless it's clearly expressed in writing, preferably in the document. Robert, what about if I want to give my pearls away? Or what about if I can no longer drive my car and I want to have my son or daughter gift the car to a niece or nephew? What about stuff, not cash? The rules really are the same, Elizabeth, but the value of things is usually not nearly as large and, and doesn't make people as twitchy. 
Although I will say one of the things in your theoretical uh, that immediately makes my ears go up and the back of my neck, uh, the hairs rise on the back of my neck, is giving away your car. Because here's what we see. Who do you give your car to when you're beginning to lose capacity and you no longer drive? Too often we see cars being given to caretakers. And that begins to look like an abusive relationship. Caretakers are notorious for saying, oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't get over on time today because my car is such a mess. It's, uh, it, it needs a whole bunch of work. I need a new car. You know, you're not using your car. Maybe I could just drive your car. You know what? You're, you're not using your car. I've been driving it. Maybe you just want to deed it over to me. I am not suggesting that that is always true, but it is true often enough to make us all very anxious about cars particularly. Well, Robert, what makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up about cars is when I think about insurance. And I think about the fact that if you gift your car to your youngest grandchild who just turned 16, well, does she have her own insurance on the car? Because you shouldn't be continuing to insure that car for her to be joyriding in unless she's really able to be a driver and she's licensed and she actually can get her own insurance. So, Cars are just bad ideas for gifts, if you ask me. <laughs> I, I, I'm generally inclined to agree. And the pearls, uh, unless you have 42 different pieces of jewelry of some value and you're just giving one of them away to your favorite niece who, who is the only one who comes over to visit, I would tell you the same thing about the, about the jewelry. Uh, giving away the one diamond that you inherited from your grandmother or the pearls that have been in the family and are the only um, significant item of personal value will probably try to slow you down unless you are clearly competent, clearly can express your wish. And then Godspeed, if you want to make gifts during life, we've said it before and we'll say it again. The joy that on the face of the recipient is something you ought to share. You ought to do it during life, but not after you're in capacity. Well, Robert, I wish more people would call us and talk talk about this with us because it is a hot issue, particularly when somebody dies and we ask why the family relationships may be so bitter. Um, the gifting actually has an ugly way of rearing its head later down the road. So it's not that we want to discourage people from making gifts. It's just that we want to encourage discussion about gift giving and encourage the discussion while you still have capacity particularly if there's a pattern and we're just trying to document it and trying to establish that you do want it to continue after you become incapacitated. And Robert, my last note about gifts. I have had a number of instances that were quite uncomfortable with charitable organizations. Um, you and I and, and the whole team here at Fleming and Curdy are really enthusiastic about the nonprofits here in our community and, and nationally and internationally. It's great to make gifts. But when I learn that a charity may have contacted one of our clients who's incapacitated um, and who does not have clear written instructions regarding gifts upon incapacity to that charity, um, it certainly concerns me. I've had to, on a number of occasions, have conversation with charitable organizations regarding exactly how to work with donors upon the incapacity of a donor. I certainly don't encourage people not to stay in touch, but there's a much different kind of insight and thoughtfulness that needs to go into communications with donors who've lost their capacity. 
It's really important to think about. So if you're a charitable organization, you're listening to the podcast today, please don't hesitate to give us a jingle. We'd love to chat with you about any kind of issues you may be having with a donor who's incapacitated. It's okay to get professional advice about that kind of a thing because it can often be confusing and frustrating for the donor and also for the charitable organization. Thank you, Elizabeth. All good pieces of of wisdom. I'm Robert Fleming. I've been talking with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, my partner in the law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. Once a week, we publish our podcast, Elder Law Issues. That's what you've been listening to. We think it'd be really cool if you subscribed and listened again next week, and we hope to talk to you then.